Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Ship show. Well, I've been traveling most of the week, which is why I haven't been able to do a podcast before today, but I certainly have quite a bit to talk about. Early on, I talked about the Trump honeymoon and my belief that it wouldn't last very long. In fact, I thought it might have ended before the marriage began with the inauguration, but it did carry on a little bit Uh, after that. But it seems to me that the honeymoon is ending now. Uh, Today, the attempt to repeal and replace Obamacare went down in flames. And that's something that I had predicted a while ago. I said that I doubted that they would be able to repeal Obamacare. And it turns out that I was right. They didn't do it. In fact, I think President Trump threw a Hail Mary late in the negotiations by promising or threatening, rather, the Republican holdouts, you know, pass this bill or else. He basically said, look, it's, it's this or nothing. If you don't vote to repeal Obamacare and replace it with Trump care, then that's it. You know, we're stuck with Obamacare. And I think that that was a bad gamble for the president to have made. In fact, as soon as he issued that ultimatum, I thought that it was going to be a problem because I didn't think the conservatives were going to buckle as a result of that threat, and they didn't. And now, not only has the bill not passed, or they pulled it, I guess, because they knew the vote uh, wasn't going to make it, but now President Trump is in a very awkward position because he's already said, take it or leave it, and Republicans left it. Well, now how does he come back to the negotiating table after he's basically, you know, taken that stand? Because now if he comes back, he doesn't have a lot of negotiating credibility, given the fact that he, you know, he didn't keep his word. But I still think it would be better if he went back to the negotiating table. I think it was a bad tactic for Trump to say that it's my way or the highway, that if you don't vote for this, then we're stuck with Obamacare. Because why should we be stuck with Obamacare? I think that if this effort didn't succeed, they should have tried again. 
They should have recognized what the problems were in the replacement bill and tried better to fix them. The problem is a lot of Republicans don't have the stomach for real reform. They just want to talk about it while they're running for election. They want to you know, talk against Obamacare. But when push comes to shove, they don't want to take away anyone's free lunch. And so, you know, they're rhinos, right? They're Republicans in name only. And that you know, label may well apply to President Trump. But here we are. Obamacare is not going to be repealed. I mean, eventually it's going to go away. And this is, you know, part of why I think it's actually better not to repeal it. I mean, if you're going to flat out repeal it, well, that's good. But if you're going to repeal it and replace them for, with a place it with a Republican rebrand that maybe is not as bad. And I would agree that the Republican version of Obamacare is not as bad as the original. Right. So this plan is certainly less bad than the plan we got. But here is the problem. If we replace Obamacare, which was going to fail anyway, with Trump care, which is also going to fail, who gets the blame when it does? Because now the Democrats could say, well, you see, if you'd have just left well enough alone, if you'd have just stuck with Obamacare, uh, we would have been fine. But you guys adopted this free market type alternative and it's a disaster. So now we need socialized medicine. We need, you know, single payer. That's what would have happened. But at least if we go down with this ship, it's obvious why it's sunk. And now the Republicans can say Obamacare was bad. Now let's really try a free market solution, not what they just put up as another government solution masquerading as a free market. Remember, they said they wanted to put a conservative bow on Obamacare. Well, that doesn't change the fact that it's not free market uh, medicine and, and, and health care and insurance. And I, I was listening to some of the congressmen debating on the floor, and a lot of them talked about how this is bringing free market principles to health care. No, it doesn't, because it maintains government control and government direction. It also creates a brand new entitlement. Since when do Republicans want to create entitlements? I mean, first of all, we're already bankrupt from the entitlements we already have. Why would we want to add another one? And at least there were enough holdouts that didn't want to do it. But the more you know, germane issue at this point now, because Obamacare is here to stay, right, is what's going to happen now. And, you know, Trump has already said that he is not going to enforce the penalties against individuals who decide not to buy insurance, which means that even more healthy people will make the choice, the rational choice, not to buy insurance because, after all, they can just buy it after they get sick. So this is going to compound the problem for the insurance companies. And so I predict that insurance premiums that were already rising fast under Obamacare, under Obama, are now going to rise even faster under Trump. And this is going to be a big problem also for employers who still provide health insurance because the cost of doing it is really going to skyrocket. And so that's going to force more employers to lay people off, maybe to cut back on wages to make up for the escalating cost of health care, or just drop insurance altogether because they can no longer afford to provide it. So again, this is going to accelerate the demise of, uh, of Obamacare. But think about it from the perspective of the markets, right? And what I first started talking about, the Trump honeymoon ends now. It ended this week. In fact, I think this was the first down week since uh, Trump was elected in the stock market. Right? The Dow was down a little over 300 points this week about a one and a half percent decline. 
And remember, you know, he embraced, Donald Trump embraced the stock market rally, right? It was vindication of what a great job he was doing even before he started doing the job. Well, I said at the time that was a mistake because he owned the rally. He's going to own the decline and he owns this decline. And I don't think this 300 points is the end of it. This is just the beginning of a bigger decline as the markets start to think about all the optimism that was baked into this rally not materializing, starting with Obamacare repeal, because that was one of the things everybody was confident. Oh, we're going to get rid of Obamacare. And that was particularly good for business, American businesses. And it was going to keep health care costs down. Well, none of those good things are going to happen now. And so now we have to price that out of the stock market. We have to price that out of economic growth. A lot of people agreed that Obamacare was inhibiting economic growth. And one of the reasons that the economy was going to grow much faster under Trump was going to be because we were going to get rid of Obamacare. Well, now Donald Trump is saying that ain't going to happen. Well, so now the economy is going to have to be as burdened as ever. In fact, more so, if I'm correct. So Obamacare is a bigger burden for the economy, the market under Trump than it was under Obama. So now the market has to start you know, pricing all that good stuff back out of the market. But also now the markets will start to question whether Trump can succeed with the rest of his economic agenda. Are we going to have comprehensive tax reform? Well, I'd say the odds of that have diminished since uh, the first effort at Obamacare repeal was a failure. How much real regulatory reform are we going to have? I think a lot of people are going to start to question the efficacy of Donald Trump. And remember, Donald Trump said, hey, I'm a great negotiator. The art of the deal. Well, he blew this one bigly. I mean, this deal fell apart, right? What kind of negotiating is that? And so to me also... This would be a dangerous thing if Donald Trump completely abandons the conservative wing of the Republican Party and decides to try to form an alliance with the Democrats. Right. And because he could pass a lot of legislation if he gets most of the Republicans and, you know, a small chunk of the Democrats. So he can go for the conservative Democrats uh, and, and, and then take the liberal Republicans and get a real kind of center coalition which I think would be very dangerous. I mean, you could certainly pass a lot of legislation if you, you take that, that road. But what that means is lots of big spending programs that you know the Democrats like and certain spending programs that the Republicans like, and then tax cuts that everybody likes and certainly tax cuts that are more gimmicky and targeted at the middle class, but which really don't generate much in the way of economic growth, but generate much higher deficits and a lot higher inflation. And of course, you know, all this is going to weigh on on Fed policy. And, you know, by the way, the stock market was down one and a half percent for the week. Gold was up one and a half percent on the week. And the dollar was down across the board. The dollar index was down about six tenths of one percent. I think the dollar index now is at the lowest close of the year, despite the fact or lowest weekly close back under 100. We're at 99, I think, 76. But that's despite the fact that the Fed just hiked rates, right? We had a rate hike in March. We had a rate hike uh, last December, but the dollar is down on the year. Now, it's not down a lot, but the year's still early. I think we have a long way to go down in the dollar as the year progresses. Meanwhile, even though it was a down week in the U.S., most global stock markets finished a week higher. And so the outperformance of foreign stocks versus domestic stocks accelerated this week. And that doesn't even take into consideration 
the currency effects, because obviously, if you're invested internationally, not only do you get the gain of the foreign stocks, but you also get the gain in the foreign currency relative to the dollar. But I think next week could be a very, very interesting week as the market psychology begins to turn negative, as people begin to doubt all the optimism that there was. And again, if you look at all the economic data that's been coming out over the last couple of months, the only good data is this soft data that relies more on economic confidence and surveys, right? If you actually looked at the hard data, right, which is really telling you what's going on in the economy now, not what people are hoping is going to be going on in the future, the hard data really never improved. It was just all this soft confidence stuff that got better because people were so confident that things were about to get better under Donald Trump. Well, as they start to see the agenda falling apart, hey, repealing Obamacare was going to provide a lot of relief. Well, now there is no relief. It's going to be more painful than ever. And and so as this mindset starts to change and now the soft data starts to roll over, the hard data never even improved. In fact, we had a pretty big pickup uh, this week in weekly unemployment claims. I think it was the biggest jump in six months or so. And of course, you know, the level is still low and the unemployment rate is still low. But, you know, that can change, obviously, with all the minimum wage uh, increases that have gone into effect. I mean, that's going to continue to put pressure. And, you know, maybe some employers started hiring people thinking that Obamacare was going to go away. Well, now that it's not, well, they got to, re- you know, they got to get rid of those people, you know, or maybe they have to cancel their plans to hire because, you know, they got to stay under 50 full time employees if they want to stay away from the requirement to provide health insurance. So a lot of the optimism that small business had, you know, that's going to reverse. And of course, you know, are we going to get the, the tax reform? I think the, uh, the president's political uh, capital has been damaged by, by this defeat. And as I said, I think he's going to have to veer to the left in order to get something passed. And therefore, what we're going to pass is, is not going to be very good economically. Meanwhile, we are careening towards the next debt ceiling challenge, right? We're going to be up against the debt ceiling. The Republicans are going to be asked to rubber stamp a increase in the debt ceiling because we'll be told again, hey, that doesn't matter, right? We need to keep raising the debt ceiling so we can keep not paying our bills. Of course, that's not how they put it. They say we have to pay our bills, therefore we have to go deeper into debt, but you don't pay your your visa by borrowing the money on your MasterCard, right? You actually pay your debts by paying them so that your debts go down. They don't get bigger because you continue to borrow more money because you can't pay your debts. But that is the situation that we're in And that situation is going to accelerate. I also wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on with retail sales and particularly what's happening with with automobile sales, because a big part of this phony recovery was in convincing over leveraged, underemployed Americans to go out and buy more stuff. And they did. I mean, Americans continue to buy stuff under the Obama administration, but it looks like their ability uh, to continue to go deeper into debt to buy more stuff that they can't afford is diminishing. You know, if you look at the continued data that's been coming out on retail sales, on department store sales, it shows that consumers are really, really cutting back. And they're doing it simply because they don't have the money. Now, some people are talking about, well, people are, you know, they're favoring experiences over stuff, right? They don't want to go to the mall and buy more clothing, They just want to, you know, they want to experience something. They want to go out to the movies or they want to go to a concert or take a vacation. And, you know, maybe it's that 
they're just giving up the stuff first. I mean, they don't, they're not giving up necessarily on the experiences, but in the past, they had the experiences and the stuff. Now, all they can afford is the experiences because, you know, maybe they figure they got enough stuff and they'd like a few more experiences. But the problem is most Americans make a living selling stuff, not experiences. You know, and a lot of experiences don't cost that much money. I mean, you can have a lot of fun doing stuff without spending a lot of money. It's the shopping that requires money. It's the shopping that requires people to, you know, borrow money on their credit cards. But a lot of people are employed because people are are shopping. There's not that many jobs. If I decide I want to spend the day on the beach or I want to go to the park, I want to have a hike or I run or, you know, ride. You know, there's no uh, there's no money changing hands there. And I think that's why a lot of people are opting for experiences, because that's all they can afford, because they've experienced uh, bankruptcy as a result of all the shopping experience that they had with other people's money. But if you look at what's happening in the automobile market, I've been reading these articles on the big drop in used car prices. And this is very significant because what does this mean, right? If used car prices are falling and we've got inflation, right? Most prices are rising, but used car prices are falling, right? Despite the fact that the cost of making a car is going up, because the raw materials, right, necessary to make a car are getting more expensive and, you know, wages are going up so- somewhat. So it is more expensive to manufacture a car. But why are used car prices going down and what does that mean? Well, what happened is during this auto bubble and what made the auto bubble was the 0% financing, right? The government would let people buy a car, no down payments. I mean, I, you know, you, didn't even, you can walk into an automobile showroom and walk out with actually more money than you walked in with and have a new car. They were giving people cash back. And of course, you could bring in your used car and roll the negative equity you have in your existing car into a brand new car, which means let's say you went to a auto dealer and you drove in with a car that was worth $5,000 and you had an $8,000 car loan still outstanding, right? So that car had a negative $3,000 value. They would take it in trade. And then if you were buying a $35,000 car, just stick the $3,000 on there. So now you're financing $38,000. And then you finance it over six, seven years. Or a lot of people were taking on leases. You know, we had record numbers of Americans leasing cars, which unless you're writing it off, unless you're a business and you're doing it for tax reasons, There is no economic reason to lease because it is cheaper to buy. But the monthly payments were lower for people if they leased. And with the interest rates so low, a lot of people leased. But the key on a lease, right, what generates the payment is the assumption the lender makes for the residual value of the car when the lease is over, right? Because once you have a three-year lease, you make payments for three years, and now you give the car back to the, the lessor. And so now what are they going to do with the car? They have to sell it. And so it's what they think they're going to get for the used car when they sell it that really determines uh, the lease. So here's the problem now. First of all, the big drop in used car prices just shows that there's not a lot of demand for used cars. People don't have the money. Meanwhile, a lot of people are trying to sell their used cars, probably a lot of companies that lease these cars as new cars three or four years ago. And now they're coming off lease and they're trying to sell them and there are no buyers So the prices of used cars are going down. Now, of course, that's good news if you want to buy a used car, right? Because it's cheaper for you. But the bad news is now all these lease companies may be upside down on their leases because now they're not going to be able to sell the cars 
for as much money as they thought. So not only did they end up losing money on the lease, but now if these companies want to write new leases, and now they have to have a more pessimistic outlook on what the price might be for the car when it comes off a lease, this is going to push up the cost to lease a car, right? Because now when you lease this car, not only are you going to have to pay interest rates that are now higher than they used to be because rates are going up, but now the factor that they're going to use to depreciate that car to figure out what it's going to be worth is going to be a bigger drop. And the the leaser has to pay that, right? When you're making the lease, you have to reimburse the lessor for the depreciation of the car between the time you buy it and the time you give it back to them. So now you're going to start to see the cost of leasing really going up. And since so many Americans were relying on leases to buy cars they couldn't afford, and now the leases are going to be a lot more expensive, now fewer and fewer people are going to be buying cars. So the whole auto market, this whole auto bubble is going to start to implode. Right. Because so many people have already bought cars they can't afford and now they can't sell them. The the prices are going down. And a lot of this also indicates that the economy is slowing down. But now what's going to happen to these big companies like General Motors and Ford and who got bailed out by the government? They're going to be in a lot of trouble when all of their earnings start to evaporate. And of course, some of these you know cars that they might have financed, they, you know, they, they end up going into repossession. Right. A lot of people who bought their cars, uh, their used car values are now going down. So there's less collateral there for the loans. And so if people just walk away from their car obligation, the, you know, the, and the bank repossesses or the dealer, whoever you know, financed it, now they're stuck with a loss. So this is going to be bad news for the automobile companies. Obviously, if auto sales are going to collapse, if you're going to have losses in auto finance, uh, you're going to have layoffs in those sectors. So layoffs are coming. I mean, this is, you know, a mini financial crisis all over again. And remember, the last time there was a financial crisis, GM and Ford basically went bankrupt. I mean, they did go bankrupt and the government really bailed them out. And and so now they're in an even worse predicament. I think this is an even bigger bubble. The other bubble was maybe more a function of people used to buy cars by refinancing their house, right? That's where a lot of Americans during the housing bubble got the money to buy cars. They just took out home equity loans and they used that cash to buy cars. And so that did fuel a, a, uh, a, a auto bubble. But this really is an auto bubble in and of itself, right? Where all of the, the subprime lending didn't take place on, in the real estate market. It took place directly in the automobile market, thanks to the government, which really fed this whole this whole bubble, which is exactly what they did in the uh, in the auto market. And of course, you know, the automobile market is a big market. You have a lot of companies uh, that depend on that. You have a whole supply chain for the automakers. And so if there are problems at the big dealers, there's problems at all these little parts companies. So this is a big segment of the U.S. economy. And of course, a lot of this is manufacturing, right? These are higher paid jobs. This is the portion of the economy that that Trump would like to help improve. Instead, it's about to lose a lot of air from this big bubble. So this is going to weigh on corporate earnings. It's going to weigh on GDP. You know, the Atlanta Fed did uptick their 0.9% GDP forecast for the first quarter to point to 1% even, full 1%. But, you know, I still think we're likely to see a smaller number or lower number than that. And I think what we're seeing now in retail sales and auto sales and particularly in the, the price, the price of used cars. And believe me, I think these prices are going to come under a lot of pressure. I think the only thing that ultimately might cause 
uh, used car prices to start to reverse is the collapse of the dollar. I mean, I do believe that the dollar is going to collapse. You know, again, it, it hasn't gone up ever since the Fed started raising rates. The dollar has really gone sideways because all of the appreciation of the dollar took place in the anticipation of the rate hikes because people were anticipating those hikes for years. And when the Fed finally delivered the hikes, well, the dollar was finished rallying. But now the dollar is set up for a massive collapse because, A, the market is not going to get nearly as many rate heights as they priced in. But B, at some point, the Fed is going to reverse course and they're going to cut rates. They're going to do more QE. So none of that is in the dollar, right? None of that is, has been discounted in the dollar. But I think once the dollar really starts to tank, then I think we might put in a bottom in the used car prices. And the reason will be this. If the dollar falls enough, that's going to make American used cars a bargain overseas. So ultimately, I think what's going to happen is foreigners are going to spend a lot of their rapidly depreciating U.S. dollars, right? Or they're going to use their appreciating U.S. currency, and they're going to buy used cars, right? They're not going to buy a lot of new cars that we manufacture. They're just going to buy a lot of used cars that Americans can no longer afford, right? Maybe a lot of the Japanese will start buying back Japanese cars, used cars, from Americans, Although, I don't know, they, they, they drive on the other side of the road, so maybe the Japanese won't want them, but maybe the Chinese will want them or somebody will want them, right? That's ultimately what's going to happen. It's going to be like a giant repossession of all of our used stuff because we're not going to be able to afford that, to have it anymore, and foreigners are going to be a lot richer. And I think, paradoxically, as I said before, the border adjusted tax would even accelerate that process, but I don't think that's going to pass. I mean, I don't think, I think that, uh, Trump burned through a lot of political capital already for no reason. And so, again, a, a lofty goal of major tax reform is going to be elusive. What's going to be more likely is just a gimmicky uh, bill uh, that cuts taxes and e increases government spending, a la what we got under George Bush. And we all know how the George Bush presidency ended. It ended in disaster. And if you are upset that Barack Obama was president, that's why he became president. He became president because of the disaster that resulted in 2007 from that compromise and the bubble that the Fed inflated along with it. Well, this time, given the fact that the problem is much bigger and the bubble is much bigger, if we make that kind of a deal now, if Donald Trump makes that kind of a deal with the Democrats and this thing blows up on his watch, which I think it will, He's not going to be lucky like Bush was, where it didn't happen until his second term. This is far more likely to blow up in his first term. And what does that mean? That means that the swing back to the left is going to be, I think, an even bigger uh, swing than the one we had to Obama. So the people who are bidding up U.S. stocks because they're anticipating eight years of tax cuts and deregulations what they might have to start factoring into the market is that four years from now, we're going to have an even more liberal president than Obama. Maybe, maybe it could be, you know, a Bernie Sanders type or an Elizabeth Warren type. And then what happens? Then we have huge tax increases. We have massive re-regulation. Uh, and, 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 and they're going to have a mandate, right? They're going to say, oh, you know, 
look what happened. We, we brought in a free market guy. We brought in a Republican. They cut taxes for the rich. They deregulated. Everything was great. Obama handed the Republicans a pristine economy. We had low unemployment. We had low inflation. Now it's a disaster. Look at the misery index. And it's all because of too much capitalism and too much greed. And now we really need to stick it to the rich. We really need uh, you know, to take control of this economy for the little guy and punish these rich uh, capitalist bankers who ruin the economy. I mean, I could already see the campaign and I know how it's going to end. So I do think that a lot of this, these possibilities are going to start to enter into the psyche of investors. And we will see a, uh, a acceleration of this uh, down move in the market. But again, I still do not believe that the U.S. stock market will collapse because I believe the Fed has an ace up its sleeve, which is, you know, take away the rate hikes, which I think is coming. Right. The Fed is not going to allow this market to unravel once they perceive that that's a risk. They will play that card. And so that, I believe, will stop the carnage in the stock market, but it will accelerate the carnage or begin the carnage in the currency market. And of course, for gold and silver, we'll send them through the roof. I mean, gold, you know, up this week, it's been trending higher. You know, we're just under, I think, 1250 right now on the price of gold, but still extremely low. Oh, by the way, I'll just throw this out for you. Bitcoiners now, Bitcoin is now about 950. So we now have about a $300 premium between one ounce of gold and one Bitcoin. Not that one Bitcoin and one ounce of gold have any relationship to one another because there is no way to weigh a Bitcoin, right? You can't have an ounce of a Bitcoin. So it's just arbitrary that you're taking one Bitcoin versus one ounce of gold. I mean, probably if you wanted to compare Bitcoin to gold, you'd have to take the total market cap of all the gold in the world and say, what's that? And then take the total market cap of all the Bitcoin, which right now is about 15 and a half billion. And if you're going to compare the value of all the Bitcoins that have been mined versus the value of all the gold that have been mined, of course, Bitcoin is still a small fraction, a tiny fraction of the value of all the gold. But nonetheless, if you're going to take those two numbers, you know, Bitcoin was at 1350 a week or two ago when everybody was excited about the uh, uh, the ETF, and now it's at 950. So it's dropped uh, what 400 dollars a Bitcoin, which is a huge, huge decline in a short period of time. And uh, so right now you have that premium. You have 1250 gold, approximately. You have 950 Bitcoin. Anyway, that's it for now. I think next week looks to me like it's going to be a very, very interesting and exciting week in the markets. And hopefully I get a chance to make a a few more podcasts next week than I did this. Today's financial advisors behave like pro wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.
Hi, this is Peter Schiff, and long before foreign governments were buying gold, I urged my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals. Despite gold's massive rise over the last decade, I still think that a 5 to 10% allocation to gold and silver is a smart investment decision. But buyers have to beware. Big TV gold dealers push all sorts of coins that are poor investments. Bait-and-switch deals, price protection guarantees, leveraged gold accounts. These are just a few of the sleazy tactics used to swindle inexperienced gold buyers. My gold company is different. We never offer a coin or bar unless I consider it to be a good investment. I want my customers to be educated. That's why I'm offering you a free research report exposing the biggest scams and ripoffs in the industry. Download my report, Classic Gold Scams, and how to avoid getting ripped off for free at goldscams.com. This report tells you everything you need to know about how to avoid losing thousands of dollars with scam gold dealers. It even tells you how to tell if a salesman is lying to you on the phone. This is a must-read for anyone considering a gold or silver investment. Download this free report today at goldscams.com. That's goldscams.com.